0: Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary, Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler the Institute's director. In this episode, Brighton Breitenbach, the poet, painter, novelist, playwright, essayist, and human rights activist, talks about his seven years in his South African prison. During his imprisonment, he served two terms of solitary confinement.
1: The first part of this day was more in the tradition of our wonder cabinets of the past, which was just like one damn cool thing after another. And it was precisely dreams of solitaire. Solitaire the fantasy of what we would do, what we might do if we were thrown into solitary. And of course, none of it's of any value whatsoever as you begin to hear when you hear from people who actually have spent time. So we're gonna, for the next couple hours, hear from four people who have spent time in solitary. We'll begin with Brayton Breitenbach, a great, originally Afrikaans language poet, painter, political activist, who was in exile in Paris during the 70s, didn't feel he was doing enough, went back incognito and was captured. Well, I'll let him tell the story, but he spent seven years in prison and part of that in solitary. Well, if
2: anybody should know the story, Ren should. He actually wrote about it. Sometimes I think I understand myself better, the little bit that I do understand, looking at what Ren understood. That's one of the um, occupational hazards of being a writer oneself, is that one is continually shaping your own experiences, and I think thereby also, to a certain extent, shaping one's own memories. It's very difficult to reaccess the rawness of the experience uh, as it actually took place. And I don't think that's necessarily a very bad thing. As we heard in the first part of the proceedings today, I think people project and people imagine. And to a large extent, this is what happens while you are undergoing that experience. That's a way of surviving. To project yourself beyond those experiences, perhaps imagine yourself elsewhere. And of course, as you try to make sense, once you, if you survive, if you come out the other side, you are acutely aware of the fact that the very means through which you try to imagine what happened to you and try to recount and try to interact in a normal way, normal quotation marks with the world again, uh, those means are very clearly conditioned by by whatever craft, whatever way you use, in my case, it's writing and painting. I must admit that it's very difficult to talk about because obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot that people think they know and there's a lot of it people know, perhaps without knowing it, they know it. I don't talk about this very often anymore. So this one reason why I accepted this, rain is perhaps to revisit from another angle after many years uh, this particular experience and to see what it means to me and how, how much of it I can convey. But I am inclined to talk about it in a kind of an indifferent or rather a secondary way. I made a few notes um, and they are no particular order of importance or relevance. And I'm quite conscious of the fact that each one of these observations could be argued or could be contested to illustrate a diametrical opposite of the point I try to propose. The first one would be that Although the period of the experience that I refer to, that's roughly from 1975 to 1977, was of course intensely political, I will only do so obliquely. I'm not going to be entering into the political environment or background. It is implicit. It will at some time, at some moments, be very explicit, but that's not what I thought I'll try and talk about this afternoon. Still, a little bit about the context. The context, of course, is South Africa, 1975. The country was economically, diplomatically, and even culturally isolated and boycotted. Apartheid was then a minority rule. It was still a law of the land. Liberation movements were banned and exiled. Internally, there was some underground resistance, largely driven by the United Democratic Front, made up of trade unions, student and other groupings, church groupings, civil society organizations, I was arrested in August 1975. I ran, as alluded to it, I was uh, on my way back into the country in a rather foolhardy mission, clandestine with an assumed identity. And I was actually arrested on my way out of South Africa at what was then uh, the Jan Smuts International Airport and has since now been renamed the O.R. Tambo International Airport. Uh, I was interrogated for quite an extended period of which I do not remember very much because one of the effects that we referred to or we listened to this morning, losing a sense of time, very much happened to me during those first, what might have been a week, maybe two weeks, or maybe a month of intense interrogation by the Bureau of State Security and by state security officials. I was then later on charged with and convicted of terrorism and the Repression of Communism Act. This was in November 1975, and I was sentenced to nine years' imprisonment and sent to the maximum security prison in Pretoria, where, in fact, I was already then kept when I was taken back after the first few days and nights of intense interrogation. I was taken back, and so it was, in a sense, just being returned after the court proceedings to an environment that I already knew. But now I knew that I had been sentenced for nine years. We call it Beverly Hills. It's maximum security. I was kept in isolation in C-section. That is a part of the prison. My cell probably was a little bit more than two meters wide by maybe three and a half meters long. I have to recall and I have to reimagine, you know, one does things like stretching your arms and you try and remember how many paces it took to get to the end of your cell. It had a door with a barred aperture at about chest height covered by mesh steel wire, and above that, in a one wall at a height of more than four meters, a similarly meshed window without glass on a level with a catwalk outside from where the warders on duty could look down on me. There was a bulb in the ceiling, kept on night and day during the initial period, a cement floor, of course, a wooden bunk bolted to one wall of the, of, uh, of the cell, a felt mat and a gray blanket, that had to be kept rolled up and a sanitary pail or bucket. All of these, together with the eating utensils and one's shoes, were kept outside the cell door during the daytime. Your cell door was opened, you had to put this out, and it would come back in at four o'clock when it was lockdown time without the shoes, obviously. The food was brought by a trustee. We call the trustees in South African prison language, they call pimps. He was, of course, always under the supervision of a warder. The corridor outside my cell, there were two more empty cells next to mine, and it was a bathroom opposite with a shower and a mirror consisting of a steel sheet that was bolted to the wall. This corridor at one end uh, gave on to a minute inner courtyard, which was covered overhead by a steel grid, and at the other end was blocked off by steel doors from the main C-section corridor. Now, this would be the territory where I spent uh, my next two years, never seeing any other human being other than the pimp who brought the food, maybe a monthly visit taken out into an office to be medically checked. And uh, for the initial period, the security police and the Bureau of State Security officials kept on having access to me because they thought they hadn't done with the interrogations. So they saw me and, of course, the warders who looked after me. I never saw any other prisoner. I never saw any member of my family or anything like that. The prisoners or the warders who watched over me were were not allowed to talk to me. Normally, one would be locked down for 23 hours a day. Uh, One was let out for half an hour exercise in this yard that I just described. And during that period or a little bit longer than half an hour, you'd also be emptying your slops your pail, your bucket, and you would be cleaning the corridor, the one in front of the sound, which is done by moving on what we call taxis. These are little folded strips of felt material, probably leftovers of the mats, and you use those for cleaning. It was also Pretoria Maximum, and I think this is perhaps worthwhile pointing out, it was also the country's place of execution. Up to seven so-called condemns would be hanged every week, and this constituted the universe of sound within which I lived. The Condemns, I mean, you can imagine if you have a catwalk where you have a window that is actually not glassed in, there's a reverberation from all the other sections of the of the prison. And the, uh, the people due to be hanged were kept for the final days and nights in what was called the pot, which was a, a large collected cell. And they would be singing practically day and night before they actually were executed. And of course, beyond that was a shouting back and forth, people passing on messages and trying to communicate with one another. I was never allowed to do so, but I could, from listening to what was happening around me, I had a fair idea of who else was there and why they were there. Then there would be a march down a corridor, the main C-section corridor on the morning of execution, So the sounds would be the shackles and the chains, the clink of those as the men are taken down, and then the sobs and the groans and the collective chanting. Because if there's a group of men being executed at the same time, there were sometimes women, but very rarely so. But when it was a group of men, you could very distinctly hear that the older men were trying to comfort the younger ones, not to be afraid as they go up to the galleries. You lift by your ears very, very powerfully. So You would hear the clanging of doors and, of course, then the silent shudder of trapdoors opening, running like a shiver of death through the prison. Uh, But it was also 1976, and it was outside the uprising of the students in the townships. Uh, There were battles fought. One sensed the uh, agitation and, to some extent, the excitement of the prison population both the warders and the prisoners for different reasons. So one had, in a sense, by rev- reverberation, you had a fair idea of what was happening in the city or in the, in the country surrounding the prison. New batches of detainees came in, and uh, because of the rumors of the world of beyond the walls, I think it gave one's isolation a sense of purpose and a sense of, a sense of hope even. And that I think is important to point out. I started off by saying that I'm not going to try and talk about the political environment. That's not the purpose here, not now. But I think what managed to make it bearable, if that's the word, is that one had a sense that whatever you were going through was part of a small part of a much bigger process. Uh, and you could to some extent hear what was happening around you and how other people were going through similar experiences. It gave a it gave a purpose to it. Okay, I want to make a second remark before I actually get to what I thought would be the theme for what I would like to talk about: solitary as entry into the underworld. That's what I call my my contribution. But the other remark that I need to make, I think, is I'm going to be using. Um, I'm going to generalize. I I'm, I'm, I know that the experience of isolation is always unique. It's probably informed by the person's age, by the person's experience, by the person's education, by the level of the person's uh, motivation, by the religion, sometimes by the physical and the mental condition, etc. So I cannot generalize, and I would be using terms, and I will be using terms and concepts quite approximatively. I'm neither a scholar nor a psychiatrist, and you will have to bear with me for that. For instance, I use the term self quite often in my remarks, But I'm quite aware of the fact that we perhaps do not agree what we mean by self. We may have quite divergent definitions when we talk about this thing that we cannot pin down. But I needed something. I needed a kind of a prism, uh, a kind of a movement in order to be able to talk about it. I'm also aware of the fact that as a writer and as someone who has used and transformed uh, the material uh, of the distorting effect that hindsight and the words and the justifications, and of course, the self pity and the self glorification may cause and may have caused in the past. As also, and that is something I became very intensely aware of, the slyness of the mind hiding from itself. Keep that in mind, whatever I may say, it may even be operating right now as I speak to you. Because the need, the need to the, the unquenchable uh, desire for understanding and perhaps for comfort, as the Swiss writer or the Swedish writer Stig Daggerman pointed out, is, is, is always with us. One is always projecting oneself also. Let me talk about three approaches to this notion of solitude being the entry to the underworld. For me, three planes come to mind, or three doors giving entry to this underworld. The first would be the physical environment. It is closed. You're closed in. It's restricted. It is bare. It is ugly. It's, in fact, quite deliberately ugly. It's nearly as if there's somewhere the intention by those in power to break down whatever comfort you may have had or may get from it being a little bit bearable in terms of the color used on the walls or the texture of the walls or things like that. So it is ugly, but this becomes a matrix. It becomes the extent of your movements. It becomes a retreat. And in fact, it becomes nearly to some extent a place of safety. That's where you know who you are. That's where you know where you are. This becomes home in many respects. It may be an unintended side effect, we call it to become institutionalized, where you become attached to what you do not have, as it were, where you where you become broken into to what is available and to the conditions under which you live. And that in the self becomes, of course, an, in a sense, a lever that can be used because the moment it is disturbed, the moment something else arises that disturbs the monotony or the rhythm of your incarceration or your isolation, you perceive of it as a threat, as a kind of upsetting that which has become familiar to you. It's come to the point where, for instance, later on during my time in prison, which was seven and a half years, and I was always kept by myself, although not in isolation as for the first two years, I was then later on moved to a much bigger cell, and at least I could talk to other prisoners going down the corridor. But even then, whenever there was something that was happening outside, it was sent as a kind of an impingement on you. If you had a visit, however much you wanted to be visited by a family member, when that was announced... You actually experience it as some kind of a disturbance. After a while, you don't want to know about the outside world. You become part of the world that you actually live in. The retreat, is, it, it becomes your place. It rhythms uh, your rituals. It becomes the exteriorization of your senses, the texture, the smells, the colors, or the lack of colors, on the intensity that this brings about. Something that I experienced very, very powerfully from quite early on, that the fact of be deprived of, variation of variety of colors, of textures, or smells, or sounds for that matter, tended to sharpen the senses enormously. You became intensely aware. It was a breakdown of what I would call the hierarchy of aesthetics, perhaps the hierarchy of experience, and that was replaced by a very intense experience of that which was available, that which you could see. So that if it happened, for instance, at a, in over the courtyard, which was meshed in, but or were high walls around it. A bit of colored paper will blow in, and you suddenly saw red. It was like your mind was blown. It was like an explosion. It was just a bit of a strip of paper, perhaps. It got blown around a prison yard, but you experience it very, very intensely. You learn to live within the confines. The mind, or what passes for mind, becomes like a rat in a cage, endlessly repeating the same ruses to look for the break or for the fault line which, when it does present itself, you perhaps will not recognize, or perhaps when it does present itself, uh, you will not take it, except if it were to present itself as suicide. If you were to try and commit suicide, you will be charged with potential damage to state property. So you're not allowed to do that. (laughs) But, of course, it has its own strangeness, and it brings along its own, its own fears. You live with your strangeness and you live with your fears as something outside yourself. Again, let's call it the premises. And again, now I know I'm of a very dangerous grant because I'm talking to people who know who know these terms and who use it precisely. But you move into the premises of perhaps what would be incipient schizophrenia, a doubling of self, a talking to self, obviously. But also a watching of self, watching yourself even in the interaction with the immediate environment around you. And there's a certain fear involved there because you know that beyond a certain point you probably will lose control over this other person living with you in a cell. You're trying to restrain yourself. You question this other self. You're trying to restrain yourself. You are conscious of having to project a certain attitude, a certain way of talking, a certain way of being to the warders when they or to the prison officials. Uh, you sometimes weep for yourself. You try and not let anybody know about that. After a while, after the first few weeks, when they put off the light, at least in the daytime, uh, it became a little bit easier to, uh, to actually hide and to, and to cry. But then, of course, you do develop these weird and interesting rooster conversations along all kinds of lines of philosophy and otherwise. The second door of entry would be what you hear and see and imagine on the outside. When you live by ear and by smell only, the clear map you piece together of events, people, situation, a country, a past, maybe a future. Here you become conscious of the essentiality and the inevitability of imagination. You project. You know that you are projecting to some extent, but you are being led by this projection, by this imagination, what you can pick up, what you can perceive of what is happening outside. It is perhaps something akin to certain forms of meditation where you're taught how to literally project yourself beyond a certain distance or beyond a certain confinement. And you extend your awareness of your environment in that particular way. Outside becomes visible because of the inside. And I was lucky in that I'd been exposed to forms of meditation before I went in, so I could perhaps understand what was actually happening to me to some extent. The third doors of entry doors of perception in heaven and hell, to quote the other old man, would be when you actually lose it, when you uh, hopelessly enter the irrational and you recognize it, and you don't question or refute it or reject it, you don't really have much of a choice to remain sane about it. You know that you are entering a place which is structured and which has its own geography, its own topography, and which has probably been there all along. That I found a fascinating thing. This book that I wrote in prison called Mourouin, which is a reflection of that, and many of the poems that I've tried to write since, during that time, again and again return to that. I know there are physical landscapes, there are cityscapes, there are relationships, there are people, there are colors, there are sounds that I return to again and again. It's nearly as if entering that particular door finally made it possible to access a world which has perhaps always been there. I tried to theorize or I try to explain it to myself. I try not to understand it too much because there's no way in which I can possibly understand it. But I became intensely aware of that. And you know you recognize it each time you enter there again, even if it may be slightly different from time to time. I was just reading one of the things I wrote in Moura, which is a projection, which is an entry into that particular world. And I must say now that I don't no longer recognize it in the same terms. The geography has changed to some extent, but it is familiar at the same time. What is it that is familiar? I think it's an intense sense of helplessness, of impotence, and of a deep melancholy. I think everybody has that to some extent, perhaps. And I'm sure that if one goes into that mind, what you what you would come back up with, if you do come back up again, uh, wouldn't be the same for each person involved. For some people, it would be intense anger. In my case, it was a kind of a... Ageless melancholy. I just just felt terribly sad. I didn't want to change it. And I knew it wasn't going to change me particularly. But it was was not a particularly happy place to be in. That's where you go and meet the other, the double, the guide, the shade. But first of all, what I remember is the physicality and the autonomy of that particular place. I may be aware retrospectively that it must have been a different place in a situation every time. But similarities in experiencing is created this the sense of returning to the same place again and again. It's, there's the illusion of continuity, and thus of structure. Now I don't know if I, Ren. I think this is where I need your help to perhaps sharpen some points. Perhaps maybe two very general remarks. The things that we listened to this morning are not that far off the mark. Uh, you know, including the bugs and the and the cockroaches and the and the ants, and the dove in my particular case was the dove, the imagined or real uh, little animals uh, that you talk to, a little insect that you talk to. Uh, it is true. Uh, the slipping of time, the loss of time, the loss of the sense of time, that is also true. I think people imagine quite clearly what it's going to do to them if they were to be there. Perhaps the thing that needs to be sharpened The thing that I would like to perhaps show up as as a difference when you've been there is that you don't have a relationship of harmony with those whom you do meet, with the people whom you hear, or with the warders, or with the security people, or even with the medical people who look at you every once in a while. You are intensely conscious of having to retain your form, la forma, as we'd say, as my Catalan friends would say. The posture. That's the curious thing that happens to one after a while. That you yourself are the only person who can make yourself survive, even if you lost sense of who you are and even if you lost sense of time and of place, particularly of time. And of course, it's damn awful when you have no sense of ever coming out again. There's no reason why you come out on the other side alive. And of course, you know that the person who will come out won't be the same one who went in, as we were clearly told early on. But it's an intense situation of hostility, of animosity. And I think that conditions nearly everything else that happens. How does one, to some extent, survive? And I think that would be in my final remark. Rain before passing on to you. The, the one would be, I think, the awareness of the physical need to care for oneself. The way one would care, in a Buddhist term, for the nine separating wounds. As the way you don't become attached, but you know that if you weaken, you will become more vulnerable. Your attachment to yourself becomes a leverage that will be used against you. Your attachment to your own sense of importance, even if it's a political importance, even if you know you're on the right side, you're struggling for the right course. even that attachment becomes a a form of exerting pressure on you. So it's a very difficult thing to do. I don't know if I can explain how I try to do so, but how to retain a form without becoming attached to the contents, as it were, without becoming attached to the importance of whom I think I may have been. But of course, the questions do arise. How the hell did I get to be so stupid to end up here? Why are they doing this to me? How could they do this to me? You know, it's not because I was anybody important. It would have been the same had not been anybody else. So one has to be very careful to see clearly that what also happens is that you develop an intense sense of self-doubt and self-disgust. You become totally disgusted with your own stupidity and with your own weakness and with your own lack of foresight, et cetera, et cetera. Part of this looking after yourself, the form, keeping yourself in shape in some way or other, and I think the movement is very important and the smells are very important and the visions that we start having, in my case, these were paintings coming out of the wall, Bruegel and Bosch paintings coming, literally coming out of the wall. Part of that is also recognizing that one is perhaps punishing yourself even beyond the extent to which they will be able to punish you. And that, I think, accounts very often for prisoners, if they can possibly do so, harming themselves, swallowing something sharp, if they can get hold of it, or a spoon. In the prison I was in, they knew about that, so they cut off the handles of the spoon. I mean, you couldn't really, it wasn't really much use swallowing just what was left of the spoon. But people, would if they had half a chance to do so, if they could hide a blade, for instance, they would cut their own sinews, they would cripple themselves, literally. And partly it is... Perhaps a very ancient need to still experience yourself by scarification. You know, we heard today here the kind of obsessive need to scratch yourself or something. Partly, I think it is testing yourself and pushing yourself even to beyond what they would want you to be. I mean, there's no other reason why you would continue being so concerned about bodily cleanliness. They don't really care about that. I mean, you can go through the motions of pretending to be clean, but it's important you should do so. And part of, of course, this is a desperate plea for attention. I remember at one point, I can't even remember how I got hold of a pair of scissors. They wanted me to cut my own hair. I was taken to the bathroom and I managed to talk the water into allowing me to cut my own hair. And he must have turned around. He must have talked to somebody else for a little while. And I started cutting off all my hair. And I was half gone before he realized what would happen. And he stopped me for damaging state property. And, of course, the next morning, I was really severely reprimanded and punished and then thrown in a hole. Because this isolation is not the hole. That's something else again. So I was severely reprimanded by the head of the prison for, uh, you know, doing it to myself and damaging the property which belongs to the state and all that. The good thing that came out of that is he gave instructions: all my hair should be shaven off, which, of course, is something that I probably was secretly hoping would happen because, in a way, it's, it's a sense of cleansing oneself.
1: One thing I was um, going to hmm? ask you, the profile I did with you is in a book called Calamities of Exile. And after you came out, one of the most mysterious things you ever said to me, well, actually, you showed me. We were, we were You had been out for a while and it took a long time before you started painting again. And the first painting you did was a self-portrait, looking at yourself in the mirror with your eyes closed. Mm-hmm. This was about six months after you'd gotten out of mm. prison. And and I asked you, why did you paint yourself with your eyes closed? And, and your answer was, because I couldn't stand to look at myself yet. Mm. Which at the time I remember thinking, who, what is looking at who, what in that sentence? It's well, it's, it's a... Uh, yeah. And just that, it seems to me that has a bit of that self-loathing and so forth.
2: Yes, of course, of course. I mean, you must be superbly well-prepared and well-trained, which I don't think anybody ever is. I've seen people react in a very strange way, or at least I've heard from neighboring cells, people who were kept during my initial period of detention, who I thought never would crack. And they were weeping and crying and sobbing through the night and all that, and they would be willing to talk to anybody who talked to them. And others whom I thought would be cracking immediately never said a word. So it's unpredictable how one is going to react. And that is part of the thing. I think it makes one become separate, severed from who you think you are. I don't think I was particularly happy with the person that I thought I had become. I was obviously not, you know. I mean, it was just, there were too many contradictions involved, too many ambiguities, both politically, personally, etc., cetera, et cetera. And it was just a large measure of total stupidity because literally I should have been far more careful and I should have known that if I do certain things, the consequences are going to be inevitable. So obviously, yes, there's a self disgust But the self disgust comes more from being deprived of any sense of agency. And that comes a little bit later and far more stronger. So for instance, you're in a cell and there's a corridor outside, up and down, which other prisoners move. And for some other reason, the warders decide to beat up one of the other prisoners. And they will beat him up fairly severely, right where you can see. You're literally one yard away. There's a grill between you. You can't intervene. But if you are to shout, you know, or something, stop it. Don't do that. It's a human being. It's just going to come on you. I mean, it's just going to... And the fact that you don't do so, that you bite it back, that you become accomplished to, that you're forced to assist. And they know this. They know this instinctively. I don't think they're being taught this because this waters is not very well educated or trained people, neither in psychology nor in anything else. They just instinctively sense that if they can make you submit to the degradation of not being able to do anything where you would instinctively want to do something, it will turn back upon yourself. And that's where the self
1: disgust comes in,
2: in a very big way.
1: Thank you so much, Brenton.
2: Pleasure.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.